stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. My choice is my choice. My business is my business. My husband and I have a job and we're working. We want to work for CGL. We want to work for the industry. And we have every right to, like everybody else should. I believe in jobs. I believe in work. And, and I believe in people that, that are out there. Our First Nations are working out there. They have a say in this world. That was uh, from an event yesterday in Houston, B.C. And uh, that voice you heard was a uh, Wet'suwet'en member by the name of uh, Marion Shepard. Uh, Marion Shepard and her husband actually own a trucking business uh, in Houston. She supports the Coastal Gas Link Project, as many First Nations do and many Wet'suwet'en members do. In fact, there were about 200 Wet'suwet'en members who attended this meeting in Houston, which was meant to be, as I said earlier, almost a, a safe space for members to gather and to be able to speak openly and publicly about this whole situation, both in terms of how they feel about this project and how they feel about the protests and blockades that have uh, come up, uh, supposedly in solidarity with those uh, with Sweden members who do not support this project. So, it's an important component to this story, I think, that the Canadians need to understand that it's not just black and white, that uh, what Sweden members pose this project. Now, some do. There are some hereditary, hereditary chiefs who have spoken out against this project, five in particular. Uh, but there are others, including other hereditary chiefs, that are very supportive of it. In fact, all 20 First Nations along the route of the pipeline, of course, as you've heard, are, are supportive of this project. Um, so joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, this other side to this conversation, why it's important uh, to, to hear these voices. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Stuart Muir is executive director of Resource Works Society and has uh, spent the last week or so uh, in uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, territory to, to speak directly to, to the people who live and work there. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Uh, now, you were on hand yesterday at this uh, event in, in Houston, B.C., I think about 200 um, in attendance, tell, tell us a bit more first of all about you know what this event yesterday was was aimed to do. Yeah, I, I think it was a chance for the first time ever, really, for the supportive members of the local population, including non-indigenous people. But the focus was really on the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nation, which is a actually a group of six different individual First Nations under the umbrella of of this uh, Wet'suwet'en First Nation, which runs through. Uh, a, a beautiful part of northern British Columbia, where I am right now, here in the town of city of Smithers. And this uh, town of Houston, it's a, been a resort town for a long time. It's only 3,000 people, but it's got the world's biggest sawmill, giant place, the 10-4 Houston Mill. And it actually draws the lumber supply down from the valley where this protest is occurring. This is actually a kind of, you might call it a, a managed, um, it's not a wilderness, it's a, it's a managed forest scape where for many decades there has been uh, mining. There's a huckleberry mine in that area. There's there's the logging that goes on to feed this vast uh, sawmill. And so the population of Houston is very used to these issues. But I think what's happened is the Wet'suwet'en, who are uh, p- p- part of this corridor through the mountain valleys, are are realizing that uh, the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary system has been appropriated by pressure groups that realized in the atmosphere 
in the post-colonial era of almost a troubled, I wouldn't say failed, but a troubled governance system, both the the elected system, which is what comes, of course, from Ottawa, from the Indian Act, and also the, the parallel, if you will, hereditary system that comes through 13,000 years of tradition that have continued continuously existed here. So, you know, it's an interesting meeting point, but back to my point, which is that, you know, this has been disrupted, it's been used by outsiders who realized that there was an opportunity to throw some sand in the gears of a a high-quality pipeline project by by appropriating some of this. I mean, I want to add very quickly that it's not as if there's no real legal or historical grievances here. There are. There's always Mm -hmm. a kernel of it in in this, and I respect and acknowledge that. But I think at the same time, there has been a a sort of exploitation under our noses, and and the the people who suffer most of it, most from it, are those local Wet'suwet'en, which is, um, you know, 70% support in one of these six communities that I visited to, 87% in another one of those communities, according to what uh, leaders there tell me. Um, That's a pretty high level of support. When, When was last time we had that in a federal election? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think you're going to get 100 uh, percent agreement on anything, let, let alone uh, any kind of a resource project. But, you know, the, these numbers are, are I, I think, pretty overwhelming. So that that should matter in this conversation. If part of the issue is indigenous involvement, indigenous participation, indigenous consent, uh, that, that, that I think is very relevant, isn't it? Yeah, the involvement. I mean, why don't we go into asking the question, so what is this involvement? And because it shows up, I think, mainly in the most measurable way of the economic measures of, of jobs, of revenues that allow for, specifically, there's a 46-unit apartment building that in, in the community of Witsit, uh, Morristown, north of, of Smithers, which is a Wet'suwet'en uh, village, and they're not going to get that if the pipeline doesn't come through because the money for it is coming from the pipeline project, they have training programs. I just visited this morning a place where they're doing, uh, they've got an a, a engineering shop. They're doing training for chefs to be able to go to the construction camps and, you know, work in the kitchens. Right now, the thing I hear most, especially from the older generations looking at their, their kids and grandkids is, um, how do I get training how, so that there could be a job, so that there could be uh, a, a good paycheck, so that there could be preservation of language and our culture and traditions so that the kids stay here and don't go away to faraway places to have their lives. You know, this is what uh, troubles the elders. By the way, what, what is the status of, of the pipeline itself? Because, you know, we're hearing today that the RCMP were going to, to move back. Of course, they went in to, to enforce this injunction and remove some of the blockades that were preventing construction. It, it, has work actually been occurring? Yeah, I, I believe there's work occurring, um, maybe not as much as in that part of the pipeline as, as uh, they would hope to see. I, I think that there is, uh, you know, the machinery in motion, the exact status of where are the Mounties who are, you know, way up the road, who, who the feds are now saying are pulling out. Well, they're, they're not, you know, disappearing. They're going to go to Houston. I suspect the command center is probably going to be there, and it's not very far. I mean, I've driven out a couple of times in the couple of weeks I've been here, and it's it's just a very easy drive to get to the start of that road. You know, then it's quite a distance to go up it. But but it's not like it's way out, you know, remote from Houston. So I think it will be a question of, okay, we've got the court order in effect. As long as the conditions of that order are respected, then sure, why not pull out the Mounties? Um, I, I think there is a little bit of a, a moment of, of hope on the, the part of the Prime Minister that this will work. I think there's also a lot of skepticism that it can work, but hey, let's give them a chance because it 
you know, we haven't seen a lot of integrity from the protest movement. It seems like everything is a game. It, it feels like yeah. you're dealing with a, a petulant child, and they'll, they're going to say one and do one thing and do another every single time. I think this is a moment, maybe, if that movement wants to be taken seriously and not just as a, a sort of uh, irritant that no one can figure out. Um, maybe they can come forward with an act of, of integrity, which... You know, frankly, I think it's forty sixty that that can happen based on past performance, but I'd love to be an optimist on it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We talk about the, the hereditary chiefs and the hereditary chief system. I mean, obviously, there are elected bands and band councils and band chiefs, but there's also the hereditary chiefs and, and the clans that they represent. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You got a video posted uh, on, on your Twitter feed. You spoke yeah. this week with uh, Gary Naziel, uh, who is, in fact, one of the hereditary chiefs, represents uh, one of the, the Wet'suwet'en clans. And it was interesting, it's not only is he someone who supports this project, he's actually employed himself working on this project. And he had some really interesting things to say, too, about, you know, this whole hereditary system and, and how this is all supposed to work and that maybe it, it hasn't been working as of late. Yeah, that's right. And I'm an SJ viewer, if anyone wants to see. As I travel around, I'm actually putting short videos so I can you know, share it. I'm just trying to listen. I'm not here to tell anyone anything. I'm here to listen yeah. and transmit to others. And what Gary said... Uh, now, he's a hereditary chief uh, from the, I believe it's a small frog clan, the Luxembourg, of the Wet'suwet'en, and he holds authority and high esteem in his community because of that, and people listen to him, and, and yet the, they, they, they call it uh, the Fab Five, these five chiefs, some of whom have uh, titles that are questioned because of the way they acquired them. You know, they seem to be out there not using the participatory democracy tool, that is the Feast Hall, to, to validate their decision-making. They're just doing things, and that's really angering people. So someone like Gary invited us to his home to to allow him to, us, us to film there, and he told us, hey, I've worked in mining. Uh, I've worked all over the place. The chance to come home and work on my own territory would make my grandparents proud of me if I could do that, and now these people want to stop that from happening. I mean, he was. it was kind of emotional to hear it, but I think he was emotional in saying it, too. And that's what's happened. That's what I've heard so often. So why is it, you know, that the governance system, it's it's meant to be the feast hall is meant to be, you know, in the potlatch tradition. You know, some people I'm sure have read about that. It's meant to be a place you come together and and the people speak. It's not a dictatorship, but that's how it's being operated, according to many people that I'm hearing from. Right. So as this situation continues to unfold, and, and I, I do think that this side of the story is getting out there, and I mean, credit where credit is due. I mean, Houston, B.C. Oh, yeah. is, is kind of isolated, but I think CBC yep. actually sent someone up to, to cover this meeting yesterday. They did. Um, so are you convinced, I mean, is this side of the story getting out there? Well, I, I think what we're dealing with is a, a pressure group movement that is um, both highly organized, yet also uh, networked and and you know, hub-like, uh, it, it doesn't have a center of command. You know, today we saw David Suzuki in Vancouver making pronouncements to try to, uh, you know, drive this issue. We're seeing the these hereditary chiefs who are off their own bat against the project. They're, they've gone out uh, down east to get together with, uh, I guess, their allies down there. We don't know really know what they want to do. We don't know what mandate they've been given by their people. I don't, I don't think there is one, um, whatever it may be, and. You know, I think what we're dealing with now in the Internet era is the ability for, you know, helmets in Hamburg to give 100 euros to, you know, save, you know, the wet to wet. Well, he doesn't know what he's doing. He has no idea except he's getting some some mailings and and he gets emotional about this uh, this wilderness that we know to be, uh, you know, the 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 back end of a a massive uh, sawmill. 
Um, and, and so the fundraising capacity, they're raising $10,000 a day or more because of this publicity. They're putting it into legal campaigns. Uh, some scholars call that lawfare. Lawfare, just to use our courts in a in a tactical way to slow down things, which really gets judges unhappy. They don't they don't they don't think that's what they're in their their courtrooms for. But but our system allows that that sort of lawfare to take place. And there's also just the ever moving goalposts. You know, as, you, as soon as you think, okay, we got a deal on that. I mean, look with Tech Frontier. Um, you know, we thought there was a hundred tons. You know, there was a there was a coming together in 2015 with environmental groups. We thought we had something. All of a sudden, as soon as you agree to it, then they're tearing it up and doing something else. And that's the problem here, too. And so the, the end goal, therefore, is, is something different than what it is stated to be. It's not about this pipe, you know, it's not about this, dis, this, this dispute where there truly are some territorial claims that have to be worked out. You know, we've got no treaties in this part of the country. Uh, it's not like Alberta where it's all treaty, right? And things are just kind of settled. Here it's not. And so that's, that exists. But at the same time, it's not... It's not that the San Francisco or Berkeley, California uh, radical groups funding a lot of this uh, care about that issue. They care about stopping uh, fossil fuel development, as they call it. Uh, that's what it's about. So it doesn't really matter what happens or doesn't happen with the with certain people. They're just pawns to some extent, apart from their real true grievances that exist, in, in a greater strategy to disrupt. You know, here we are. Uh, I've, I've been driving around a lot today and you know when you're driving you you think things through i've been thinking you know what look at a map at where we are here through the mountains from alberta to the the sea or from northeast bc to the sea at kitimat it's kind of our own bosporus our own straits of hormuz you know it's a choke point that instead of being subject to you know interference on the high seas or people coming to it from foreign countries it's actually things happening inside the country that are disputed that cause this choke point to be um, you know, one that we cannot pass through with our own resources. So we've got our very own Bosporus, like, you know, Istanbul going to the, the, the Black Sea, uh, right here in the mountains. And how do we solve it? Much more at resourceworks.com. And as mentioned, uh, you're on Twitter. It's S.J. Muir, M-U-I-R. Stuart, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. All right. Uh, That is uh, Stuart Muir. He's uh, executive director, Resourceworks Society, resourceworks.com. And as he mentioned, for the past week or so, uh, he has been on uh, Wet'suwet'en territory and speaking directly to members. Uh, of this First Nation and how they feel about all of this. And it is quite enlightening. All right. My name is Rob Breckenridge. I'm going to be here 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.